Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. As is often the case, this episode sprang from a random discussion we had about a week ago. Sometimes we get together and have one of these remote worker chats where we each sit down and we just jaw for about an hour or so and complain. It's a coffee clatch. It's a coffee clatch with tea on my end. And you were talking about your new shorts and your hair, and I was talking about something else. (laughs) And then I mentioned to you a recording that I was listening to in the morning that perturbed me. It was a Grateful Dead recording from their recent June 1976 box set. Wonderful sound on the recording, really crystal clear. Except Jerry Garcia's guitar was way far over to the left, like really far over. And I was thinking, and of course, this has crossed my mind at times, and a lot of dead recordings are, what would be the term, I guess, mixed like this. They have this sort of spatial mixing to position the instruments. But for the first time, I started thinking, yeah, but his voice is in the center. And it didn't make any sense. Now, with a band like The Dead, you've got two guitarists, you've got bass, you've got two drummers. And you've got a keyboard player, and they put Jerry on the left, and they put Keith Godshow, the keyboard player at the time, all the way on the right. And I was thinking back to the Grateful Dead concerts that I saw, and never once did it sound like that in concert. Never. What do we call that? Is that what's referred to as the sound stage? Yes, the elusive sound stage, the mythical sound stage, which is all which is an illusion. Right. It's 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 a complete artifice. Exactly. It's not the way. It was heard. The example I have is this. Let's say you have a really good tape recorder. And you go down to the subway and there's this guy who plays sax all day long. And you record him. And you've got that nice subway echo and everything. And you bring the tape recorder home and you listen to it. And it's like somehow it doesn't sound authentic. But if you were to go back to the subway and play back the recording, it would sound terrific. Now, the difference is that when you hear the source, it's not in stereo. There's no, your, your brain has these two receptacles to interpret the stereo, but it wasn't in stereo originally. It was just there. Stereo doesn't exist, objectively. As ancient Buddhist philosophy pointed out, the entire world is an illusion. We're looking at each other on screens, kind of like in Plato's cave. You might not actually exist. You could be a Turing machine. And it's the same with what we hear. It's an illusion. When You know, that when we're looking at something, our eyes actually are looking at it upside down and the brain has to convert it. And that's always freaked me out, the idea that I'm actually standing on my head <laughs> or, that, or that gravity's pulling me up and not down. But there are these things that happen in the brain that we just take for granted. And spatial location is important when there's a saber-toothed tiger growling in the distance. You want to know which direction the tiger is so you can run away or so you can shoot at it, you know, pull your bow back and shoot an arrow at it. Spatial recognition is important when we're talking to people. Imagine you're in a group of people and there are four people and you're all on the corners of a table, right? So you're looking at one person, you've got one person on each side, 
if your eyes are closed, you'll know who is talking by the position of the sound. So it's obviously something that we've developed as a, what's the term in evolution? One of these evolutionary things that we develop, which makes us, which makes us able to survive, basically, survival mechanism. When it comes to music, though, what's interesting is that somehow, and I'll get to why, which is how this started, which is interesting, somehow we've decided that two speakers can reproduce everything that we hear. Now, I don't think anyone who's a serious music listener and audio gear person thinks that stereos or any audio equipment will accurately produce real sound. Although that doesn't, stop, that doesn't stop them from, from searching from for that. But. Yes, yes. And in fact, something came to mind the other day when I was discussing this issue of the Grateful Dead concert, that with high-resolution music, you hear these people talking about the music as the artist intended. Yet stereo, particularly if stereo sound is manipulated with positioning of instruments, it's not the music as the venue presented it to you. It's not the music as it sounded in reality. It's, it's a convention. It's an interesting convention, but I'm wondering if it's just not wrong. I think it's wrong. Um, and I didn't. I never did. Okay. Thank you for listening to this. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our TED Talk. <laughs> um, you know, because I've worked with pairs of speakers. Uh, maybe we'll talk about recording studio stuff later. But um, when I was a kid, my the records that I first had were my father's old stereo hi-fi demonstration records. And they inevitably had a roller coaster ride. And they had a train going by or a parade going by or something like that where they really wanted to show off this feel the presence. In fact, RCA used to market their stereo records as living stereo. I don't know if you remember that. Living stereo, yeah. That little, they each, there was a speaker in each corner of the record, and then the whole top banner of the record would say living stereo. And it would, Right, and that was better than the dog listening to the gramophone. Absolutely. You've got two speakers and no dog. It's yeah. got to be an improvement. Uh, so anyway, so they made a big deal about this. In fact, one of my favorite stereo demonstration records was Bob and Ray throw a stereo spectacular. And it was uh, from RCA, and it interspersed Bob and Ray routines with some of the musicians that were on the roster at RCA. Abby Lane, uh, actually, that's the only person I can remember right now. But the cover was done by Jack Davis, so it's that early 60s sort of uh, uh, thing. And when you listen to it, everything was sharp and crisp and clear and listen to how, listen to the spaciousness. In fact, they even did the Bob and Ray bit was done in such a way so that they could use sound effects to hyper illustrate, look, we're way over here on the left. Now we're way over here on the right. Now we're in a big echoey room. Now we're not in a big echoey room. Now we're closing doors, things like that. All of these things went on. And I think it was just a way of marketing an interesting sound. And we fell for it because it does sound interesting. It does very interesting when you hear things move from one side of the room to another. But the problem with stereo is that it's very hard to get that sweet spot right. And here's a quote that I found in a forum, just a random, just looking on the internet for people talking about positioning speakers. Now, we've talked about this in the past. You want to ideally have an isosceles triangle where the two speakers are two of the points pointing toward the tip of the triangle where you are located immobile, fixed with your head at the right level, etc. 
So here's a random person who wrote in a forum, I've spent the past two weeks changing the position of the left and right speakers, but just can't get it right for stereo music listening. If you sit dead center on the sofa, then vocals are anchored dead center and the sound stage is expansive with instruments located around you, but move your head slightly to the left or right and it falls apart. Should I be able to achieve a front sound stage that more than one person can enjoy or am I wasting my time? Are my left and right speakers placed too far apart because of the size of my screen? So this was apparently in front of a television. And this is what really gets me. So I have two speakers on my desk where I'm sitting now. And an isosceles triangle is the one where the, all the lines are the same length. So the angles are equal, 360 degree angles. The way my speakers are set up is what's called near field listening, where the angles where the speakers are, are more acute. So the, the speakers are actually far wider than they would be in normal listening. And when I'm sitting in my comfy chair on the other side of the room, it's more, they're much more closer together. Right? right? The sound would be is much closer together. Well, the speakers are closer together. So you don't hear the separation as much. Now, the, the, the absolute level of separation is headphones. And I don't really like listening on headphones a lot because of that, because sometimes the music sounds like it's in the middle of your head and that's like a bad movie. <laughs> and sometimes it's too much on one side and too much on another. So when I listen on my desk, it's more apparent. When I'm listening in the comfy chair, it's less apparent. But there's always this problem that if I'm reading and I'm looking at the left page of a book, my head's slightly turned left. And when I look at the page on the right, it's slightly turned right. And the music doesn't sound the same. I like what you called it, the tyranny of the sweet spot. The tyranny of the sweet spot, indeed. Because you are locked into that spot in order, if for critical listening, obviously, if you just got wallpaper music on, who cares? But if you're sitting there and you want to hear your Grateful Dead live and you want to hear it the way it was at the show, it's it's not going to come across that way because they've they haven't mixed it the way you heard it. If we look back at the early days of stereo, right, you think of the Beatles album where the guitar and, and Paul are on the left and the drums and bass and John are on the right or whatever. And I was thinking about that this morning. They didn't do that because they expected us to sit at the apex of the isosceles triangle. They did it because people didn't know how to set the speakers up, and they put two speakers in different parts of the room, and it would give space, more like the band is near you. It wasn't in any way an attempt to create what we know as stereophonic listening. It was an early method of making it sound more alive, of benefiting with the two channels and giving you two recordings instead of one. Yeah, I, I think it's important to come back to the, the idea that these instruments aren't stereo. When they're played, like when Paul plays bass through an amp, it's not stereo. It's one source. It comes out of one space. So the when they put music, when they put instruments on one side or the other, it's much more lifelike. And that's what got us thinking about doing something radical. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that in a second. On an absolute level, if you're seeing a small band in a club and the guitarist just has one amp, it's going to sound like he's where that amp is, right? The drummers are always going to sound like they're in the middle because they are in most cases. Though, if you go see a jazz piano trio, it's generally from left to right piano, bass, drummer. So the drummer's far enough away from the piano. And I know, I, I've heard some Brad Meldau recordings, the live recordings, where he's mixed very far to the left, attempting to reproduce that sort of lounge sound, which is, is only realistic if you're sitting in the first couple of rows. My thing was this. All of these positions are based on per a performance stance, right? You've got an orchestra, 
you expect to hear the cellos here and the second violins here and the brass back there and the percussion over here. When you hear a blues band record, for some reason or another, you expect them to be their music, their, their instruments to be in the position that they were on stage. But I can tell you as a person who has done, has played in rehearsal much more than performance that we never did that. We just didn't set the equipment up that way. We set it up so that we were all facing each other. So exactly. that we could all hear each other. Yeah. So there, yeah. if if we were to record that, it wouldn't sound, it wouldn't have the, well, Doug's on the left and Bill's on the right and Joe's down the middle. It's, it was just everywhere. And that's how you heard it. It was, the, the source is one big lump of sound that we're trying to all produce. Um, but this performative stance, that's seeped into the convention. Maybe that's part of the marketing. Here's the picture of the orchestra. Here's the recording of the orchestra. Look at the picture. Listen to the sound. Be but there. But when you go to hear an orchestra, you don't hear that. Yes, yes, you hear the cellos slightly weighted more to the right. You hear the violins sl slightly weighted more to the left. But the way... So the, the thing about... And and this this is a rabbit hole. It really is. Because when you look into this, you think the best way to get a realistic recording of an orchestra is to have multiple microphones at decent distance, different distances, and a couple above the stage and a couple further away. And you kind of blend that together like a, you know, a blended whiskey to get something that works. Or Or like a painting, which I submit to you, a recording is kind of like a Fair painting. Point. Fair you know, point. you can be abstract or you can be, you know, realistic. You can do bunches of things. That's why they call them recording artists, not performing artists. But anyway, that's something else. Yes. I think we, but there are recording artists and yes. that's what they do. Well, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. That's a good example of stereo effects for the stereo effects. Right. And that couldn't be a mono album. Yet, Sgt. Pepper was originally recorded as a mono album. Yeah. And that was a pretty bold statement at the time. And then, of course, as we know, the stereo mixes came later. They were rushed. The mono mixes were really important. Bob Dylan still records, apparently, with the band more or less together like they are on stage with a few microphones rather than looking for these specific effects. And it just seems to me more realistic because then you get into the problem of the guy who spends time trying to get his speaker's position just right. And it's frustrating. And in some ways, I think we're being deceived by the, but we're being sold an idea that we can use two speakers. And if you just position them like this, like everyone says on the web, it'll sound great, but it'll never sound great. So that led me to try something quite interesting because I'm thinking you still want to have, you want stereo separation because you've got two distinct channels, whether it's recorded live or whether it's mixed, you've got two distinct channels. So you don't want to run it through a mono speaker. In particular, if you run a stereo mix through a mono speaker, you can have phasing issues and it doesn't always sound good. So I thought instead of having the speakers far apart, what if the speakers are right next to each other, but pointing outwards? So when we talk about speaker positioning, speakers towed in are pointed towards your ears when they're further apart than you. If they're towed out, they're pointed away from your ears. And I took my two speakers in my listening area and I put them on top of my, what would you call it, a credenza, and I towed them out. So the right speaker was going out past my right ear, and the left speaker was going out past my right ear. And I'll be doggone, it sounded really good. Yep. I can vouch for that. I did the same thing. We, we both have, I would say, pretty good bookshelf speakers. 
I mean, they're hefty. They can they can produce yeah. the sound. So you can't try these with little three-inch speakers because they just don't have the oomph. But um, now the interesting thing here, here is I have a pair of Bose 201s, and the, the way that the speakers are configured, they wanted the tweeters in the center. They wanted the tweeters on the inside. Your speakers, the way you set it up, you liked it with the tweeters on the outside. Well, you want the higher frequencies to be a bit further apart because they're more distinguishable than the lower frequencies. I tried it both ways, and with mine, um, the, it sounded better with the tweeters on the inside. So it could be the way the speakers are made. But it Well, mine actually don't have woofers and tweeters. The tweeters are like in front of the woofers. I have these Kef speakers. But even if you've got the—whether you've got them in the inside or in the outside, it really depends on the angle— as yep. well. Yeah. It's not just the position. And they can't be... And the room. And the room, of course. Because... So the real problem is when you've recorded that orchestra and you've got everything just exactly right, you've recorded it with the reflections of the concert hall. And when you're playing it back in your own space, you're adding the reflections of your own room. But what you're adding are reflections of a mass of music rather than the individual instruments that reflect. All, all this to say that you'll never get a recording that sounds like the real thing. Unless we come out with some new kind of device, like a holophonic stereo thing. And it turns out that there is a website, apparently some German guy, holophony.net. And I'll link to an article where he says two ears, two loudspeakers. And he goes through a whole bunch of some highly technical issues about sound and, and the room and how we interpret the psychoacoustics of interpreting, positioning, etc., I think this is really interesting because so so what we got to last week before I went into these trials is I wanted a single speaker that does everything like a home pod, but that has multi-channel, whether two or more, and that if I can put it in one spot, wherever I am in the room, I can hear it the same. And of course, that's a little bit unrealistic, but it should be possible with today's technology, instead of making a speaker that's just a little bit better. So for example, I have a pair of Kef speakers I bought last year, and I really like them. And I got an email from Kef today that I could be one of the first to get an advanced look at the new LS50. So the LS50s are these little wireless speakers, around a thousand bucks a pair. How little? Um, less than 12 inches tall maybe about okay. 10 inches tall, quite small. Mm -hmm. And so the LS50 Meta is the world's first speakers with Meta material. Oh. It's the speaker your hi-fi system been, has been waiting for. Ah. More accurate immersive sound. Mm. It's an enhancement from the legendary oh. LS50 lineage for the best acoustic performance. And so it's like... Every new gender, it's like the new iPhone's a little bit faster and the new iPad's a little bit better. And it's the same thing with speakers. But why aren't we getting rid of the two-speaker model? Yes, there's the 5.1 surround sound, and that just doesn't work. That I, that I think is even more complicated because the difference of your room to the concert hall where they've recorded it. And, and then there's digital signal processing. And I'll put a link in the show notes to where Chris Conacher told us about his very expensive speakers and how he's used digital signal processing, which up until that point, he hadn't really considered to be part of the stereo chain. But I think what we need is, is a one-speaker device rather than two speakers, because two speakers, you've got this line cut between them. There's the bit on the right, there's a bit on the left, and they're going to overlap someplace. 
But if we can have a single speaker, even if it's like the HomePod with multiple speakers that send multiple channels, it seems to me that no matter what, sound should be central when we're listening to it. And with speakers, we put it off to the periphery, whereas it should be centered and spreading out, like we both discovered putting our speakers near each other yet towed out. One of the uh, things I, I really enjoyed about this is that things that are supposed to be down the center aren't stretched across the room. And that made them much sharper and clearer. Vocals, drums. I mean, I could hear the echo of snare drums and things like that. You know, it was right there. Um, and the separation was still there when necessary. Um, but what I tried to do is I tried to find some stuff that was recorded live in the studio to see if I could get that real effect. And it was much, I don't want to say it was much better sounding, and I also don't want to fall into the trap of, oh, it just sounded different. But um, it really sounded clear and fresh when, when I had this very close configuration. The sound was just right there. And, uh, you know, I've had boom boxes and things like that where the speakers are close together, but it's not the same thing. That's why I talked about oomph before. They really, I think they've really got to deliver a good, uh, they've got to go 20-20. So I was wondering, what about a sound bar? A sound bar has multiple speakers, some of them directional at the ends. I have a Sonos Beam, which costs 350 pounds. So that's about just the price of my KEF speakers. And I spent a lot of time listening to it. And the problem with the Sonos Beam is, if I understand correctly, it's got either four or six woofers and a single tweeter in the center. Now, this is designed for TV where you don't necessarily need the full separation. You're still getting separation because when they say woofer, it's really a mid-range. And the tweeter is probably relatively high. It's quite interesting. It doesn't have the oomph of two bookshelf speakers. It doesn't push as much air at the same time. I'd be curious to hear Sonos's new Arc soundbar. Now, the difference is really quite striking because mine is about two feet long and the Arc is more than three feet long. So it's really quite a huge device, but it's got lots of woofers, lots of tweeters, and it's also got the Dolby Atmos, which gives spatial stuff if you have a Dolby Atmos TV, etc. But I think a soundbar might be a good compromise if, if the soundbar is good enough for music. Now, I did a Google search, best soundbars for music, and there's tons of articles for people who are choosing a soundbar not just for TV, but also to listen to music on because they don't own a stereo anymore. They, they listen on a TV or they stream to a soundbar in the living room. Well, did anything good come up? Have you listened to music uh, strictly over the soundbar? Or? Well, that's what I said. I listened to a bunch over the soundbar, but it just didn't, it doesn't have enough power. That's why I would need a better soundbar, I think. What I'm thinking is that, you, you know, you talk about it doesn't have the oomph. You need the oomph. <laughs> I don't, but I don't know if they can replicate that. I've never really listened to a soundbar, but I just can't imagine something as small as they are reproducing the kind of, you know, lows. You'd be surprised how loud it can get and how low it can get. And this is without a subwoofer connected. But it does kind of sound like it's pushing the limit when I put it really loud. So it's not, it's not perfect. Because the problem with putting two bookshelf speakers in the center of a space is that your whole center space is filled with the speakers. And like... The, the place where I put it is a place where I, well, my shakuhachis are there for practice, and I've got some flowers and a vase and stuff, and I don't want to put two massive speakers there. It obliterates the symmetry of the traditional got to have two speakers. I mean, whenever I walk into a room, a new room, 
everything is based on where the speakers go. So everything <laughs> is, you know, eight feet apart based on that center position that I have to be in. So moving them together was, it's kind of shocking, actually. Yeah. Ruins the whole symmetry of the room. Yeah. So <laughs> if they were a little bit smaller, because I think, yeah. I'm guessing that our speakers are oversized. The the ones I have on my desk, Q Acoustics, I think 150 or something, they're about 10 inches tall, like the size of those new caps. And my caps over here are about, I believe they're 13 or 14 inches tall. I probably don't need them as big as they are. I probably could have gone a size down, in which case the size of my smaller speakers would be less obtrusive. Committing to that over the long term is kind of difficult. But one other thing I was thinking is just temporarily, I've got my speakers on speaker stands, is I can just pull the two speaker stands together in front of the thing and let them sit there for a while. I was going to suggest you try that because I know one of the problems you're having listening right now is you're very close to a wall. And yeah. the left channel is closer to the wall than the right channel. So I think one of the advantages I have is I've been able to place them in the center of the room. And so that the speaker's sound uh, occupies a, a, an equal amount of space, I would think. Yeah, so I get reflections off the wall, and if they're in the center, I'm still going to get reflections off the wall. It's going to sound more empty on the right side, but it's going to be different reflections. It's, I, th the problem is, if we just had a single speaker that was sending out, like, you know the way you take a potato out of the oven after you've baked it, the heat comes out from all directions. That's what we need for sound <laughs> yeah. because that's what we hear when we hear sound live in a concert hall. Yeah. It's like, it's like that hot potato radiating in all directions and reflecting off of everything. Well, maybe I just need a really, really, really big speaker, like 10 feet to duplicate the sound of, of <laughs> a 10 foot speaker. You know, I remember, I also remember the, in a clockwork orange, Alex had a system where there were like, I don't know, 20, 30 speakers or something. And I always thought, oh, that's got to sound great. But it probably doesn't. <laughs> it probably sounds quite muddy because they're all going to cancel each other out right. and there's going to be conflicts. <laughs> and in fact, I think that's one of the selling points of these new Kef speakers where it's a single speaker that's driving everything as opposed to a separate woofer and tweeter. Right. But have we said enough? You know, try this at home if you can. It might be interesting. Uh, again, I, I want to caution that it could be because it just sounds different and it sounds fresh but on the other hand i've been throwing everything i have at it and i've just enjoyed everything more if you have become a patreon patron of the next track thank you your patronage makes it easier for us to produce the next track and we really appreciate that now if you're not currently a patron and you like the show and you can swing a few bucks a month to help us out Sign up at patreon.com slash the next track. Now, you've got an extract. Yes. So one thing I've been listening to lately, and I'm surprised that I hadn't picked this as an extract before in 192 previous episodes. It's Dietrich Fischer Dieskau's set of Complete Schubert Leader. It was sold as Complete Schubert Leader. It's actually Complete Schubert Leader for male voice. There are 463 songs in it, whereas the complete leader is over 800 songs. So a lot of the other leader are for female voice or for multiple singers. And I bought this when I was about 20 years old, when I first discovered Schubert Leader. And I mentioned this in the episode we recorded with Ian Bostridge. I'll put a link in the show notes. And it was on like, God, three different LP box sets, one of them with the three song cycles and then two others. And it was massive. And 
I've listened to this over and over and over. And lately, I've just put this on shuffle. It's on Apple Music and boom, hit shuffle. And it's just some of the most extraordinary music that I know. It's it's perfectly great for this central speaker thing because there is no left and right when you've got a piano and a singer. The singer is generally sort of standing in front of the piano. So the piano keyboard's to the left and the singer is in front of it. So the, the sound kind of melds the voice and the piano. I just love his voice. I just love this music. If you don't know this music, you really, this, he, he was the best leader singer of the 20th century. So link in the show notes. It's available as a relatively inexpensive box set on CD and it's on Apple Music and all the other streaming services. Doug, what do you have that you can listen to correctly with two central speakers? I'm glad you asked me because I have such a record. I've been going through my CDs as if you've been listening, I've been I've been grabbing all these CDs and trying to figure out if, if they're worth keeping or not. And, of course, with this new speaker set up, I've been, as I said, throwing everything at it. And most of the stuff that I've listened to, I've already picked as an extract pick. But the album uh, Cure for Pain by Morphine is something that I really, really enjoyed. Now, I don't know if you know who Morphine is. They had one big hit in the 90s called Honey White. They are a trio, uh, essentially slide bass drums and barry sax and vocals and most uh, most they're from boston most of their music is somewhat melancholy although they've been known to rock a little bit but cure for pain is just full of um well it's got some upbeat stuff it's got some downer stuff the a lot of people think that their music is depressing but the thing about the, the barry sax and the thing about the saxophone in general to me is that it's always been whimsical and so even when they're playing this melancholy, depressing stuff, you kind of get a sense of like, you know, the sad clown, really. And um, I just don't ever hear their music and not feel better. <laughs> even if it's down, he still has, uh, it still is somewhat uplifting. But anyway, uh, Morphine's Cure for Pain is just a, a great record. It's their second one. And uh, I don't think they, uh, Mark Salmon is on it. And he, I, I'm not sure when he died. But uh, he, he's the guy with the great vocals on it. So if you, have a, if you haven't checked out Morphine, or if you only know Honey White from their, I think it's their first album, uh, check out their second album, Cure for Pain. It's my next track. This was episode number 193 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making a regular donation via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.